Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe, a podcast on ideas, politics and all things European, European Liberal Forum project. My name is Leszek Jaszczewski and I really hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to Liberal Europe. Today uh, we're going to discuss the rule of law, but also enlargement and democracy. And we have a wonderful guest to, to do it today, uh, Heather Grabby, who is a senior fellow at the Bruegel and um, a visiting professor at University College London and uh, KU Leuven. And she's a former director of the Open Society European Policy Institute in Brussels. And uh, she recently published a very interesting piece of rule of law uh, and future of European Union enlargement. Mm. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Libra Europe. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I wanted to start by the very general question. Why rule of law and enlargement are so closely interlinked? Why they should be interlinked? Well, we've always had concerns about preparing the EU for enlargement and making sure that countries, um, when they join, are able to apply EU law. And you might recall that back in 1993, when the EU first set conditions for the Central and East European countries to join, um, one of the uh, key things they said was the country must have stability of institutions guaranteeing democracy, rule of law, human rights, and respect for and protection of minorities. And then there was a, a third Third condition that also referred to the ability to um, to uh, meet all of the requirements of membership, including the application of EU law. So this has always been there because the EU is a community of law. But it was kind of taken for granted in previous enlargements that once a country had um, been through the accession process, that its judges and uh, officials had been trained in EU law, uh, that its institutions had reached a degree of stability where the member states and the commission were satisfied that they could do all of these things, that then it would stay like that forever and that the institutions would carry on applying rule of law. And of course, what we saw um, quite a few years after the enlargements of 2004 and 2007 were problems with governments deliberately rolling back the rule of law in order to consolidate the power of one party and to make sure that they could control the judiciary uh, and other state institutions, not only running the government, but also um, violating the separation of powers and, and extending their power into other institutions so that it became very difficult um, for any other uh, political uh, group or um, indeed anybody with a dissenting opinion uh, from opposing them. So there's been, um, there's now a revived interest and concern about rule of law for two reasons. One is because of the uh, the pros prospect of Ukraine and Moldova joining the Balkans in the accession process. They've now got candidate status and the question is when they might start negotiations. Uh, but also at the same time, really major concern about the erosion of rule of law within the EU itself. Um, and tackling both of those things uh, is going to be difficult because once uh, countries are a member of the EU, of course, they can block uh, attempts to uh, to, to Im improve the situation in rule of law and restore separation of powers. And that's what we've seen in the past few years. So how we can do things differently this time and how we are going to convince Hungary to be on board? It's not going to be easy because the same government is still in power, unlike in Poland, where now 
there's um, a government um, forming, uh, which may well be um, very amenable to uh, to improving the EU's capacity uh, to ensure rule of law and also to revamping the accession process uh, to ensure that uh, that's that's it's it, Poland has proved that it's still possible even after a long period of rule of law violations and increasing state capture um, and increasing government control of the judiciary it's still possible for an opposition coalition uh, to win an election this is this is a great news this year to, sh- to show that that's still possible but it's going to be a long road for the government now uh, to put uh, together the coalition, and then it will be it will take a long time to um, to restore independence to state institutions because um, to to do so quickly would require using the same kinds of tactics as as peace the Law and Justice Party used to uh, take them over in the first place. So the new government, I very much hope, will not want to do it that way. But as you say, in Hungary, we still have a ruling party and that's been in power since 2010. Um, and Fidesz has a very firm grip on state institutions. State capture is has is gone a very long way there. And as a result, um, this ruling party is not going to want to see uh, stronger wep- stronger measures at EU level uh, to ensure it. So that's going to be the conundrum. Um, we're coming up to Christmas time and there's an expression in English, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. And governments <laughs> have succeeded in capturing state institutions, don't want the EU to be able to uh, force them to release their grip on those institutions. Right. So um, you, you wrote some, some time ago uh, an influential paper that used transformative power, Europeanization for conditionality in Central and Eastern Europe. And the main argument is that this Europeanization means that you have countries go beyond their sort of national interests when they're negotiating and they adapt to conditions which might go against their sort of short-term interests because of the sort of deeper processes. Why, why do you feel, why, why, I don't know if you, how do you, do you think about the, the, the main argument of, of this paper after experiencing of, of Hungary and Poland departing from uh, this very well very basic european values and 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 having all these rule of law issues do you think that there is there is sort of a problem that this only applies when countries isn't has a candidate status but once they are in we see that those things can um, can go wrong at some point how do you how do we need to transform you to prevent it from happening again and do you think it is really it is really possible that brussels or other member states can, can sort of try to control the internal politics of, of the member states but well, we have to take it for granted that once you are in we, we don't have to keep an eye on you all the time it's a very interesting question um I think that it's not the case that uh, rule of law problems never happened before eastward enlargement. This is not a uniquely Central European problem. Uh, There were plenty of rule of law problems in, for example, Italy under Berlusconi's government already in the 1990s. Berlusconi tried very hard to take control of parts of the judiciary, and he did succeed in taking control of quite a lot of the media in Italy. So this has emerged in other member states, but it never went as far as what we saw particularly in in Hungary and Poland um, in the the second decade of the the 2000s. It's it's become really extreme. And in Italy, there was always still a functioning opposition. Same in Poland. There was always still um, opposition parties 
and um, also some free media who were able to talk about this, whereas it's gone further, uh, quite a lot further in in Hungary um, during that period. Um, So the question is how to make the dynamic positive. Now, uh, the the book that I wrote on the EU's transformative power is all about how the the dynamic becomes positive uh, in candidate countries, because in addition to the negotiating process, which is very much based on rational choices and negotiations based on interests, in addition to that going on, which is definitely happening, both sides are negotiating for their interests. There's also a, a socialization process, a constructivism process whereby people become used to the idea that they are negotiating not between them and us, but between the future us and about the future us, that they're negotiating with the people who will not just be on the other side of the table in the future, but actually on the same side of the table. And that tends to occur both in on the EU side and also in the candidate country, uh, because its, it's enlargement, accession to the EU is uh, a process of such historical importance. Um, it's so much the integration of a country into uh, this bigger regional political body uh, that it's it's not like a trade negotiation where um, you meet, you agree, and then you each go your separate ways. It really is about the future us. And as a result, uh, there's a, a lot of influence that the EU has in candidate countries where people, officials and judges, but also academics and civil society people, a huge range of people, start to want to understand the EU better and to do things the EU way because that's going to be the future of their country. So there's a lot of adjustment that goes on, which is beyond what the EU um, tells countries to do. And in fact, when you look at the accession requirements, they're not so very detailed on a lot of issues. For example, on independence of the judiciary, um, there's not very detailed guidelines on exactly what an independent judiciary has to look like and precisely how constitutional courts should be set up, because the EU actually has a huge variety of arrangements in its member states. And as a result, the EU doesn't dictate this is what a country has to do before joining. And it's it relies on this socialization process whereby countries go, okay, so we need to have an independent judiciary, we need to be able to apply EU law in these different ways. This is how this would work in our system. Let's see how to adapt our system. But of course, that that then requires a um a voluntary and willing adaptation to what the EU uh, would would need uh, to apply the rule of law in your country. And in the past, every government that has wanted to come into the EU has tried to a greater or lesser extent really to do that. There's been what in the treaty is called uh, sincere cooperation by the government in um, in trying to apply EU law. Sometimes there have been problems with lack of capacity um, or institutions that weren't working very well. We saw that in Romania and Bulgaria when they came in in 2007. So the EU... Uh, put in some post-accession conditionality called the cooperation and verification mechanism. But on the whole, governments have tried quite sincerely to be ready to apply EU law. So that's why it was a huge shock when um, later, um, quite a few years after accession, uh, the Fidesz government in Hungary started uh, rolling back on independence of the judiciary and started taking over the media. Um, And the EU didn't really know how to respond. So I think it wasn't so much that the dynamic stopped working. It's that the dynamic just is different once you're 
inside the EU. Um, and normally, most countries, once they join, people continue to apply EU law because it's and, and continue to maintain um, the independence of, of uh, state institutions and separation of powers because it's part of what becomes their democratic tradition. And why that didn't happen in Hungary is, I think, a really interesting question. There was clearly an openness in Hungarian politics for a party to come and justify its actions in taking over state institutions in ways that people didn't um, object to. There were protests in Budapest. There were protests also in other cities. We have seen that. But somehow there was no political force. The, 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 the opposition was very weak and very discredited when Fides came back in 2010. And they were really unable to rally um, people in favor of uh, separation of powers and democratic practices in institutions. And I think it's there are many PhD theses to be written on this subject, on how they managed to do that. Whereas in Poland, the opposition remained strong and the huge rallies of people uh, the huge mobilization of younger voters and of women, um, also because of specific um, measures that peace brought in, changed that situation. But that's not been possible in Hungary. So, so there are many interesting issues I'd like to discuss here. But before before we, we move into the specific case of Hungary, which I think goes beyond the rule of law, unfortunately, at the moment, it's the whole the whole dynamics that you mentioned in which the member states were, has been treated as grown-ups as mature responsible states um, do you think it's now put into question so we would make the membership conditional on certain behavior because that's the whole philosophy of membership is different we will have not just different sort of circles in terms of the depth of integration but also in terms of what sort of members they are and now we cannot well, we can't expel countries from the EU. I suppose it won't change, but I imagine that people might suggest that you don't get the full membership only, I mean, after you prove for I know, seven, 10 years that you don't have a corruption or rule of law issues. How do you feel about it? Because we, of course, we know about the, the access to the internal markets, but I think it was different because it was sort of, it was based on the on the interest of, of the economy interests of the of the existing member states. Now it's it's more about the other countries. They they will might feel they are treated in a different according to different standards. The countries inside the old EU. Do, do you think we should make this membership conditional? It would be very problematic to have different tiers of membership, different classes of membership where um, countries that are already in can do whatever they like. And then countries that are only just joining have a very long period uh, when they don't have um, full rights, for example, for voting or full access to the EU budget. If, if that was conditional only for new members, then accession wouldn't really be accession. Accession would only really happen once a country had, had fully joined the whole EU. And I think for Ukraine in particular, that would be really unacceptable um, with all the suffering and um, the problems that this war has brought. So I, I think it's tricky to introduce that. But what you could think about doing is introducing conditions um, on rule of law for new members, which also apply to the old members. Uh, because after all, the accession treaties uh, are primary law. They are intergovernmental agreements uh, which become part of the treaties of the European Union. So if, for example, Ukraine joined um, with provisions in its accession treaty that said, well, 
um, if uh, there are serious problems with the rule of law, then the council uh, could have a vote about this um, with unanimity minus one um, or even minus two so that um, the, the country concerned couldn't veto action or that access to the EU budget can also be restricted based on the rule of law conditionality um, with a decision by qualified majority. These are new provisions that could be introduced in the accession treaty that could apply to Ukraine, but could also apply to uh, the old member states. They could then become something that applies to to everybody. Um, But of course, that would still require all of the member states to agree to that provision in the accession treaty. The accession treaties are agreed unanimously and they have to be ratified by every member state. Uh, And so that would depend on having a government um, in every member state that was willing to live up to those um, conditions and felt that um, that it was it was fair for um, every country, not just the new member, but for every country to have to have these rule of law provisions. We might well get to that situation because this, it's now been so long. It's been 13 years of, of problems with rule of law, and it's having such a big impact on the whole functioning of the European Union. So definitely an impact on values, on democracy, on um, the application of, of human rights, um, gender equality, um, and a whole range of of other EU values. But in addition to the values and democracy problems that it's caused, it's also deteriorating the functioning of the EU. It's harder and harder uh, for the EU to take decisions about things like aid to Ukraine, but also foreign policy stances and so on, when you've got one or two member states all the time saying, no, no, we won't agree to this until you give us our money. No, no, we won't agree to this until you remove the conditionality on rule of law. Um, That's causing all kinds of problems in the functioning of the EU. And of course, it's very damaging for the single market because Um, The whole point of the level playing field introduced by the single market is that companies can operate in any EU member state like their own. But that doesn't work if companies um, can't get a fair hearing in the courts in another member state because the courts are controlled by the ruling party. Or if there's corruption, which means that they can't bid for public procurement contracts uh, without paying bribes to the ruling party or to oligarchs or to family members um, of um, cabinet ministers, for example, um, then the single market is not functioning properly. And the community of law, which is the very fundamentals of the EU, isn't functioning well either because EU law is not being applied evenly across the member states. So these kinds of problems become more and more fundamental. And I think that's why at some point um, the EU will start adding, the other member states will keep adding to the rule of law toolbox, as it's called, which was whereby in addition to all of these annual reports and conditionality on funds and so on, um, other conditionalities start coming into, into place. It is, I think, absolutely essential what you, what you mentioned, that this uh, toolbox is really applying. I, I check it. It's most of the issues are from 2016, 17, applying to Poland, uh, a relative by Hungary, to be honest. And I'm wondering to what extent the incentives which you described in the, a different paper you wrote a couple of years ago, defending uh, EU values in Poland and Hungary, to what, to what extent those incentives for countries, member states, not to intervene? The sovereignty issue, the the sort of high level of the high thresholds of intervention, all the other issues which uh, you call the Glasgow syndrome as well. 
Um, so all, all the, because no, no one wants to criticize its peers, to what extent do you think that there might be some sort of hungry fatigue right now, especially that many scholars recognize that we are not talking about the rule of law issues anymore, but we are talking about deteriorating of the whole democratic system to the point in which is it a hybrid system or as uh, Sergei Gurria described it as spin dictatorship. And I'm wondering wh wh when countries might start to push Hungary sort of out, understanding that, okay, if you don't want to cooperate, it's, it's perhaps we have to take a strong action against you to the point in which Hungary might not be happy with the membership. What, do you think that that might happen anytime soon? This is a real conundrum because, as, as you pointed out earlier, there's no provision for pushing member states out of the EU. They can only leave voluntarily. And um, since the disaster of Brexit, um, no country uh, wants to do that. The, the, the populists who used to talk about, oh, why don't we, why don't we leave, um, you know, the idea of Frexit or Nexit or Huxit, uh, this has just all disappeared because nobody wishes to to um, have the kind of experience that the that Britain has had. Um, but still, um, it's very tricky because our, the countries that stay inside the EU, but then their governments erode the EU's values and its functioning from the inside, are in many ways much more problematic than countries that leave. I think myself that the rule of law crisis um, is a, a creeping cancer inside the EU now, which could ultimately prove fatal to the European Union. It's far more dangerous to the EU's health than Brexit was. Brexit was a, an amputation, very nasty um, for both sides, uh, caused a lot of bleeding, a lot of damage, a lot of pain. Um, but then the body of the EU recovered and healed. Um, and mm. you can't you can't treat it like this when when you've got uh, the erosion and the damage to the fundamentals of the EU from the inside happening. Um, I do want to distinguish between Hungary and the ruling party Fidesz. Um, people talk to talk about, like you said, Hungary fatigue and Hungary's problems. Yes, this is something that's happening in the country of Hungary, but that doesn't mean that every Hungarian supports it, just as not every poll supported what peace did in, in capturing the judiciary uh, in Poland. Uh, so it's important to remember that there, there are still protesters and there is still an opposition in Hungary. It just hasn't succeeded in um, overcoming the very tight grip that um, that Fidesz now has on state institutions. But there's still hope that that might happen at some point in the future, although it becomes more and more difficult um, as um, it's harder and harder to have free and fair elections because of the the degree of state capture. But I, there is definitely huge concern among the other member states now. Um, they don't like other prime ministers and foreign ministers really don't like criticising their peers. There's a gentleman's club uh, element um, in the European Council in particular, where the heads of state and government meet, whereby prime ministers really don't like criticising each other. Uh, so they avoid doing that. And that's why they looked the other way for so long after uh, Fidesz came back into power and, and began doing these things and were hoping that this anti-democratic unpleasantness would just go away or that the government would change, um, as it has done in other countries. I mean, we saw the way the government has changed several times in Slovakia. Um, all the way, um, you know, over over a couple of decades, um, and we've seen change of government in Poland. But um, now I think there's a growing realization that it's really very hard for any democratic opposition uh, to overcome um, Fidesz's control um, of the media, of social media, of institutions. Um, so it's going to require um, 
and of course it also has uh, it has an effect on other member states because uh, this is about EU taxpayers' money. Um, Mark Rutte, the, the Dutch Prime Minister, really pushed the issue of conditionality on EU funds because he was saying, well, look, Dutch taxpayers' money is being siphoned off and misused in Hungary. Uh, we know that there's corruption. We know that there are all these problems. Uh, but this is not just Hungarian taxpayers' money. This is also taxpayers from, from other EU member states. So concerns about that and the functioning of the EU are driving this motivation. But they still haven't found the solution because the EU's treaties and its legal framework just never made any kind of provision for um, this kind of turn by a member state. Um, I mentioned earlier that um, Silvio Berlusconi did this in Italy, but in, in the end he was pushed out of power and there were a series of technocratic governments that managed to um, uh, restore independence to the judiciary. So it can be done, but I, I think the question is at what point um, other member states give up hope that this can happen in Hungary, that it's that it's feasible to have a change of government, and also whether they regard the damage to their own um, economies and and to the overall system of rule of law and to their taxpayers' uh, trust and faith in in the EU budget and willingness to pay into it. That's the point at, at which there will be a real crunch. But although there are there's plenty of pressure right now, there's still no decisive. Um, moment, no decisive event has happened that has forced the, the heads of state and government to say enough is enough, we really have to change this now. Right, and because we are almost at the time, I just wanted to ask you a very brief last question. What should be the roadmap for the new commission um, starting next year, especially considering that we might see a great variety of populists and nationalists in the European Parliament? I mean, Still, what the new commission should do regarding rule of law, what will be the next steps in your opinion, which are also feasible and possible to do in the current political circumstances? The commission's capacity and its political um, room for manoeuvre in tackling rule of law is very limited because of its institutional role. It's the guardian of the treaties, but it's very politicised. Uh, you have a commissioner from every member state, including the member states where uh, governments are rolling back rule of law. Uh, you have a lot of influences of the political parties in the commission as well. And uh, the commission is always very reluctant to criticise or to, um, uh, to tackle a particular member state. If you look at, for example, on infringement proceedings, they're a last resort. The Commission doesn't like taking member states to court um, and tends to want to negotiate with them. And even on rule of law, it's now doing annual reporting on, on rule of law, but it still has to negotiate with um, the member state governments on, on their individual national reports. So the, mission, the Commission cannot play the role of watchdog for the rule of law fully. Um, because of its institutional um, relationship with the member states, the council where the member states sit has got to be much more um, active and important on this. Uh, they've got to overcome the glass house syndrome and, um, and the gentleman's club uh, and really uh, take issue with uh, problems that are damaging all of the member states and the whole community of law now. There's also a role for the European Parliament in having a much more active debate about this. There have been moments when the Parliament has had important debates and even initiated the Article 7 procedure on, on Hungary, uh, but then the Council didn't follow up. 
the, the parliament could continue on that line and could be much more active on it. And fundamentally, I think we're going to need a new institution of some kind, an independent institution that is able to assess whether rule of law violations are taking place and then recommend action. Um, I think that the idea put forward by the group of 12 Franco-German experts of having a, an integrity mechanism is a good one, but it needs probably to be in an independent institution like the Ombudsman. Um, so not fully located inside the council or the commission because of the um, the way that the system works, but probably outside, perhaps more a, another chamber of the uh, Court of Justice of the European Union or another part of the, the office of the ombudsman. But we're going to need some kind of independent institution that can say very clearly when and how rule of law is being violated um, and then force the council to take a decision about it. Um, and then council decisions by QMB would help a great deal. Uh, so I, I think there are ways forward and the group of 12 made a number of, of important and useful uh, recommendations in this respect. Uh, but of course, it's still up to President Macron and Chancellor Scholz to take that group's recommendations and make them their own policies. Uh, so the question is, at what point will they be willing to do that? Um, and as you said, if there are a large number of, of radical right populists in the European Parliament next time round, uh, it could be more difficult because we might see erosion of the rule of law also in other member states. Already there's the question of whether this might happen in Slovakia. There have been attempts to do it in um, Slovenia, the Czech Republic, in Italy. As I mentioned, um, you know, rule of law hasn't been perfectly applied in France from time to time. So this is not a uniquely Central European phenomenon. Uh, it's something that now all of the member states are going to have to tackle. There are huge challenges ahead of us, and it's very much high time that national capitals take responsibility for the EU in not waiting for the Commission or the European Parliament to do it. Uh, Heather, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, it's been a little, really pleasure. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Thank you, and thank you, uh, our listeners. It's been the last um, podcast recording this year. We wish you a great Christmas break, great holidays, get some rest, come back to us next year uh, to Liberal Europe. Uh, it's been Lesha Kaczewski. Uh, thank you so much. And let's see you all next year. Thank you. Goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.